Hi, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Remote Pastoral Care. Uh, I'm uh, Don, and you may notice I'm joined by someone who's definitely not Courtney Fraley this week. Uh, this is my good friend, Steve, who, uh, due to a scheduling change, is joining us in her stead. So let's go. You know, hi, Steve. Hi. <laughs> you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what brings you to the channel today? Uh, sure. Um, well, I've known Don for a very, very long time. I think we've lost track of how many years. It's pre-college. You know, we went to the same school. Um, and... I watched the first video and kind of reached out to support this uh, project. I've supported Don on many different career paths and different careers along the way and uh, settling finally upon this one. And I uh, liked the idea. I enjoyed watching the first video, especially I know Courtney as well. She's a good friend of mine. And I reached out to support it. And I've had a few couple questions on my mind that have stuck with me that we'll get to eventually in this in this segment so oh that's good uh, questions is kind of the, the main point that's uh something that i've had uh, an issue with with a lot of my own practice of faith growing up is that we tend to try to shirk questions which is weird because we follow in the footsteps of a guy who is nothing but questioning authority and religion and you know, kind of putting people in their place like that so exactly i think it's about time we start doing a little more of that <laughs> so then uh Without any further ado, do you want to just go ahead and dive right into that first question you got? Uh, yeah, my first question is kind of one that has stuck with me for a long time. And just to preface the question, I had a conservative Christian upbringing. I was part of the Wesleyan Church, which is a kind of a, I would say, I'm going to say a holiness sect of Methodism, a, a split off group. They have a history and of not allowing things like gambling and dancing and their doctrine up until even the, the 70s and 80s. And I rec do recall, um, I've always had problems with the church I grew up in ever since I was, I think, 10 years old, because um, there was a uh, uh, children's minister, very beloved by the church, beloved by all the children. She was great. Mm -hmm. um, just a wow, great person who had her wedding in the church, but she was never allowed, she wasn't actually allowed to have her reception at the church because they wanted to have a uh, a dance and this was back this was this was in the 90s yeah that's nuts so but a a teaching from the church that was never fully explained to me mm -hmm. and never um it's kind of stuck with me just because i learned it at a young age is uh there's a passage in matthew which i sent you already uh, you'll have to share the the exact numbers when we get to it that talks of when, when when Jesus talks about an unforgivable sin, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And I uh, tried to figure out how a sin can be unforgivable um, mm. from an all-loving and all-forgiving God. And I wanted to delve a little more into the meaning of that because I'm sure it means something more in context and in its original language than what I was led to believe by my church. Well, you're not, you're not wrong about that. It, there is definitely a hell of a lot more to that. Uh, I will add that when I asked as a, as a 
young, I mean, a preteen or even younger about what it meant. I was told that if you are of a mindset where you consider, have you committed this unforgivable sin, you haven't. Yeah, I got it when I was, because I grew up in a, in a, a conservative branch of the reform tradition. And I got it as um, basically, if you ask too many questions, you're going to hell. And I could not, for the life of me, reconcile that with, like I said earlier, you know, Jesus, who is all about asking questions and the entire arc of the Bible, which is about people wanting to know more about God and their relationship to God and how God should be in the world and the, the constant drive for more spiritual knowledge. But then you get this piece that says, uh, yeah, don't question your religious people or you will go to hell. And I was like, that doesn't track. Mm -hmm. um, my, my questions were not so much uh, uh, pushed under the rug when I asked them so much as they were, I think, answered incompletely and answered hastily. I mean, trying to water it down in a way that a child could understand it but but in, in the end it ended up having no substance i mean keep yes. in mind that, that my my church uh denomination i grew up in does require a supposed degree to have a, a, a to be a pastor but mm -hmm. i'm fairly certain that it does not require the intensive uh studies in latin and greek and in hebrew that you would see in, in and I could I could go on and on and on about the academic distinction between a seminary, a divinity school, and a Bible mm -hmm. college, which, hey, fun fact, rarely are even accredited. Uh, but that's that's a discussion for another day, clerical education. But um, I always found that my answers, getting old as I got older and did research myself, asked you, asked other people when I changed denominations yeah. that had uh, more training, I, always, I found that the answers I were given were incomplete or just wrong. Yeah, and that but this, is, well, this is kind of a question. The question I ask you now is one I've never really asked about. Kind of came to mind. It's something that stuck with me. Yeah, and I I never really bothered with it because I'm like, if I'm kind of, I think the, the the answer that was given to me was that if you're that worried that you committed it, you haven't. Yeah, and this is this is one of the big things we run into with people who try to use single verses to, to prove a, a point, particularly a, a point that's rooted in control dynamics. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, we have this desire in, in the church uh, as lay people at least, to look at the Bible and to want to believe that everything, particularly all the red text, the words out the mouth of Jesus, we want to believe that each one of those is an invective delivered directly at us that it's something that is meant for us to hear for ourselves in our time and place, completely devoid of any other context. So we hear these words as if they're from the mouth of Jesus and we immediately understand them in our way and we ignore the rest of what's going on around it that would give some shape to it, some meaning to it. We don't try to put Jesus in context, we just assume that the whole Bible is a letter directly aimed at us. And it isn't that, I mean, we, I've talked about this before, you know, the, the, the genre criticisms of, of the Bible, that it's not meant as a history textbook, uh, which is we try to take every book as a history textbook, but they're all different books for different purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, the Gospels in particular, what we're looking at, uh, they are Greek, uh, generally Greek writings composed between say like 70 and 170 uh, BCE, or no, sorry, B. Yeah, you know, CE. 
Sorry, I, I, I know I, I'm young enough. I shouldn't be thinking in A, D, B, C, but I still trip over that from time to time. Um, but yeah, so it was composed in that period of time and they were based on oral traditions of stories about Jesus. So they're not firsthand accounts. They're not historical. And they're written down in the style of whatever was important to that community at the time. Matthew, for example, is written largely to mimic styles that would be receptive and understandable to uh, Jewish believers and recent converts from mainline Judaism, because Christianity wasn't its own thing yet at that point. Uh, Mark is the original gospel, and it was written more in the style of like a, almost a Greek hero story uh, in parts. Uh, but again, it's an also, also an amalgam of different styles in its own way too. Mark's kind of a little bit of a mutt. Uh, Luke is written in the style of an academic text and together with its, uh, the second half of Luke, which is Acts, are, are basically a textbook style, almost like a medical textbook. And John is, John is John. John is basically just a fever dream. <laughs> no, it, it, is, it is a recollection, but it's the evangelical recollection. The one that wants to tell the story is super powerful, super miraculous, and make it as awesome as powerful. It's the, it's the big budget Marvel version of the gospel. Um, and, you know, they, they each serve a different purpose. So when we get to this story that you're talking about, Matthew, um, I did a little looking up on this one before we started recording today, because this is one that has always bugged me and I've never been able to find super satisfactory answers for it, uh, just in talking to people. This one actually shows up in three out of the four gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and when something shows up in at least three of the four gospels, I always try to default to Mark's account. Um, and that's why, because, because Mark's the oldest, Mark's the original, or at least the oldest we have access to. Questions about- yeah, I, I, didn't, yeah, I didn't know that. I just figured they were in order, but yeah. <laughs> chronologically when they were written as well. Yeah, there's, there's a line of traditional thinking that says that Mark, whoever it was that wrote Mark. We, it could have been an apostle Mark. It could have just been titled one. But there is a line of tradition that says that the gospel of Mark was dictated to Mark by the apostle Peter. Um, so like it is, whether we take it traditionally or not, we know it's dated the oldest by far. And we know that Matthew, Luke, and to a lesser extent, John borrow significantly from Mark's narratives, uh, sometimes word for word. So we know it predates that. And then there's, there's the arguments about the Q text and other things around that that, that influence it. We don't really know the fullness of the origin stories, but I, I default to Mark because it is the oldest and therefore I kind of feel like it's got the closest take on things. Um, so when I have something I don't know, I try to go to somebody I trust. You know, most, pretty much everybody does that. You know, you go to your pastor when you don't know, when your pastor doesn't really know, you go to, someone you trust. And I go to a lot of the work by one of my former professors, uh, C. Clifton Black, who does a lot of really, really good New Testament study. He's got a commentary on Mark that really digs into this sort of stuff a little bit and is a good opportunity to take apart the context a little bit here. And what's going on in that passage to, to summarize is, as is it not uncommon, Jesus is arguing with the, the Pharisees. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to use the term Pharisee here for 
cultural convenience for fellow Christians, but it, it is worth noting that Jesus himself was a Pharisee and part of a, a competing school. He was also educated in, in the Pharisees. He was a rabbi of his own right. Uh, and, and we don't want to be anti-Semitic in painting you know, all Pharisees as these kind of one-dimensional bad guys. So I'm, I'm, for the sake of cultural convenience, I'm gonna use the term, but I, I'm gonna link in the description a thread by uh, Rabbi Rutenberg, as I wanna follow on Twitter, who does a really good breakdown of all that. So I wanna encourage anyone who's watching to check that one out if you haven't yet. But in the meantime, so you got Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, right? Has happened a lot. Yeah, it, it, he kind of had a thing for that. I, I, I kind of feel him right there. You know, I, I tend to get in very similar arguments. I, I like to go and do likewise my own self. Uh, but so he's getting in the argument with the Pharisees and they are basically trying to paint him as Satan, as, as like a devil figure. Because um, he's talking about the normal stuff he's talking about. They're trying to paint him as a devil. And so his response here is rooted in, in a counteraction to that. And that's where we get to the whole him talking about everything is forgivable, which first off is a radical change because the verses that precede that, he's talking about, you can forgive this, you can forgive blasphemy even, which again was unforgivable under the, the, uh, the code of the, the Shammai Pharisees at the time. Like regular blasphemy, no go. Lots of other things, no go. Whole bunch of unforgivable sins on the table for them. So he was cutting it down to the one, which already is a radical thing. And the one there um, is it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you think of when, we, when you hear the term blasphemy? I want to ask you that. You know, I think of... Uh... I think of, to, to, to branch off from what you did in the last episode, when I mm -hmm. think of blasphemy personally, I think of the true, truly using the Lord's name in vain. Man, you just scooped my point. <laughs> <laughs> you scooped my point because that's really, that's really what he's talking about here is when he talks about blasphemy humanly, and, and we do this today, we think of an idea of blasphemy as saying something that challenges the church or its leadership. Um, and when he uses the phrase blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that puts it in a weird position because uh, in those times, as in much of the church times, there's been this kind of conflict, uh, this kind of connection in thought and, and deed that, you know, to speak ill of the church is to speak ill of God, they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. um, Catholics always been really good at that one. And so when you say blasphemy is forgivable, but blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the spirit is not, that immediately is confusing. It's more like, well, blasphemy and blasphemy against God, the same thing. Yeah, I never gave that much thought, but that's a good point as well. Yeah. So he's- Because, because like chronologically, it's like the, 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 after, it's like the gift of the Holy Spirit after the ascension. Like, what was he talking about? Yeah. And so in this case, what he's doing is he's, he's throwing down the divider. He's like, yeah, talk smack about the church all you want. It's <laughs> fine. It's okay. The only problem is blasphemy against the spirit, which, by the way, is putting words in God's mouth that don't belong to God, which is exactly the same as taking the Lord's name in vain. He's literally just repackaging one of the big 10 and pointing it directly at these particular Pharisees with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and a big open-eyed Gowron glare. Yeah. 
But on the flip side, a lot of things that would fall into that category are things that we understand as to be forgivable yeah. if repentant. So can we focus on the word used for unforgivable? Was he just using the, the term of the time to counter the Pharisees or? Well, I'll be honest, I haven't checked that word uh, right there. I'm gonna have a, I'm going to be a little counter to myself and I'm going to trust the, the translation for the moment uh, mm -hmm. with the caveat that I'm probably gonna look it up later and regret having said that. Um, <laughs> but for the moment, I'm gonna take the translation of unforgivable as valid, but also stress that again, we're looking at this in that kind of Greek hero story rhetorical style where a degree of emphatic was requisite in the way they were speaking. Um, you know, to, to decry something as unforgivable was not necessarily to mean unforgivable in the way we mean it now as utterly beyond forgiveness, but to simply, to broly it, to say my power is maximum to it and to make it the biggest and the best. There were a lot of emphatic ways of doing that and that is quite possibly what, what was intended there. I mean, we can't know exactly what Jesus was getting at without going out and asking the guy, but mm -hmm. based on context and the degree of intensity in the exchange that he's involved in, I would put better than even money on unforgivable meaning less the Lord will never forgive this sin and more y'all are jackasses. Mm -hmm. And that does kind of fly in the face of obviously what I was told about the verse to begin mm. with, because the uh, the like really conservative evangelical right winger, I would say, understanding of that verse that I was told in the past that I, I had, I did not really share this with you yet because I wanted the answer first, was that the reasoning behind the the the, the church leadership saying that if you have to ask if you've done the sin that's not forgivable you haven't because the understanding was that if you had committed a sin that bad mm -hmm. the holy spirit would depart from you and now, that interpretation and now if that's despicable onto you i can understand why because yeah no that pisses me off because that immediately indicates that the person who's saying that has the ability to discern whether or not the Holy Spirit is present or not present with another individual and that they know exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. Because here's a fun fact. Yeah, it's a scare, it's a scare tactic. Is it's all a scare it tactic. Yeah, it's a scare tactic, but it's a scare tactic using a tool that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know what it means to have the Holy Spirit descend on you. We get a couple of instances of it in the in the New Testament, like, like at Pentecost, for example, where the the spirit descends and suddenly people are speaking in languages they don't rightfully know. And, you know, Google Translate is suddenly a thing before it was a thing. Uh, but mm -hmm. like that happened the one time and we know the Holy Spirit is present in the world. We know there's some spiritual kind of ineffable aspects to our life that comes direct from God that's present. But at no point, either in the New Testament or beyond, have we ever been able to make a solid claim to know 100% how that works at all times? And, and that just, like, to, to say God will leave you if you commit this sin is the height of hubris. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, to, to... It's almost blasphemy itself. It, it, it puts me in Quite what literally. I call my... It puts, it puts me in what I call my Admiral Clancy um, mode. If, you, if you've seen Star Trek Picard, you'll get that. 
Um, I haven't, but uh, well, <laughs> I'm sure some of the viewers will love it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Admiral who sits down with, with the arrogant as hell Jean-Luc Picard and just looks at him dead in the eye and goes, the sheer fucking hubris. Like, that's the, that's the attitude yeah. I get out of people who say that if you do this thing, the Holy Spirit will depart from you. The hell do you know? Yeah. You know, you can't, it's, I, I've made it, this. It never, it never made a lot of sense to me because the idea just seems so uh, abstract to begin with. Well, I've, I've made this distinction in a couple of my sermons, the, the distinction between kind of outward and inward spirituality. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I did back in, I want to say January, a sermon that I called Useless, which was about C.S. Lewis, who defined Christianity as an objective versus a subjective term. And, just, you know, when you talk about Christianity as a subjective term, it's entirely about what you feel in your own personal relationship with God. It's utterly useless as a term because there's no way to know about a person's relationship with God. And so then Christianity can mean whatever the hell you want it to mean at that point. And I've come back to that a few times. Therein lies the problem. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what this sort of interpretation is, is it's trying to uh, monetize or weaponize even this useless understanding. So because we can't understand it, I'm going, to I'm going to rely on you to trust my authority when I say you're screwed. And that's just not how any of this works. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I, I figured I figured my commentary on that would be somewhat frustrating to you, but it's good to hear the really the the educated um, the scholars view on it and get a little more detail on what it actually means because it's something that stuck with me, but I never felt like God has left me because I did something X Y Z. It's just, it's always been as a hobgoblin in the very back of the mind, very back in my adulthood. Yeah. As a, and this is, the this is the question I always try to encourage people when they're deconstructing uh, a lot of the religion they grew up with, is if you are presented with a, with a biblical teaching, uh, you should, especially one that you learned when you were young, you should immediately ask yourself this question. Is what I'm told meant to control me or to liberate me? Because the primary purpose of the gospel, indeed the primary purpose of the whole Bible is liberative. So if you're being told something that is constraining, that is limiting, that is meant to control you in a, in a certain way, uh, I'm not going to necessarily say it's wrong because discipline, self-discipline, and organization is kind of part of the deal. But you should immediately treat with skepticism anything that is told to you that seems to have its roots in control rather than liberation, particularly because, and this is something that I'm going to spend the rest of my life in ministry apologizing for, uh, but the Christian church have been absolute assholes when it comes to using control tactics, like historically, like pretty much since Constantine, our perspective has been, okay, how do we take complete control and mandate belief? And yeah, we've sucked at that. So a lot of our traditional practices are rooted in that approach and they're not actually connected to the Bible or to the message of Jesus who was here to be liberative, to, to release us from the bonds of sin and death, not to you know, constrain us, to give us a brand new, heavy, burdensome yoke. Mm -hmm. yeah. I got my preach on again. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's what you're supposed to do. That's, guys, it's good to hear an answer on that. And 
uh, throw in my two cents about what I was what fully what I was told about the verse uh, that I didn't include because I want I kind of wanted to gauge your reaction on it because I knew it would, even knew at the time it was kind of mm. bullshit. Yeah. No, and I <laughs> to, uh, to for lack of a better word for it. No, no, no. There is there are a lot of things, particularly in American Christianity, that are worth calling bullshit on. Um, the, a lot of things that we have done for reasons that are ranging from the cowardly to the outright malicious. Uh, and we have to be deconstructing. Uh, and that's an individual journey, as I've talked about with, with you and others a few times, is looking back on our own history and tradition and kind of deconstructing what we were taught. But it's also an institutional thing, is we have to kind of come together and look at our own practices and say, okay, what have we been doing and why have we been doing this? Because it is, as many people are saying to us, bullshit. Yeah. Um, I was talking with um, a, a denominational bigwig who shall remain nameless for the moment uh, about the, the issue that churches are having with that group called the nuns. Are you familiar with that term? Oh yeah, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Yeah, right. not N-U-N-S. Yes, we're not I, to, you caught me off guard for just a second, but no, no I'm, familiar with, I'm, I'm familiar with the term, the nuns, yeah, no religious affiliation, they fill out a survey and they don't say they're atheists, they don't say they're agnostic, yeah, they and, just say they have no religious affiliation. And you know, I was talking to him about that, and everything I've seen published by churches and religious organizations about this have been rooted in the question, all of these nuns, why are they leaving the church? Why are young liberals leaving the church? Why is everybody leaving the church? And the more I've looked at it and the more people that fall into the nuns category that I've talked to, which you know, arguably could even include me and I'm a pastor, um, mm -hmm. the more people I've talked to that are in that category, their perspective has been very different. They haven't said at all, we've left the church. They said the church left us. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I left, I left my church originally and mm -hmm. you were obviously going to Hope College with me. That's a, a Christian school and we both struggled mm -hmm. with it there. And after I left Hope, I left the church for years. It wasn't yeah. until a career move when we graduated, we graduated our last year at Hope was 20, it was 2006. Yeah. And I didn't rejoin the church until like 2012. Yeah. When a career move sent me to a more liberal city, Ann Arbor, which is probably the most mm. liberal city in Michigan, where I found a lovely Episcopal church. I'm currently not there because I'm working in Boston, but um, yeah. and they're not meeting due to COVID. So, but I still right. stay in touch with people. The, uh, the Episcopal church has kind of been my home. I am definitely uh, willing to partake in, in, in services of uh, other similar denominations and non-denominational as long as they're mm. progressive. Um, yeah. And that is the piece I try to draw people's attention to is if we go back maybe as much as, maybe as little as 30 years or so, you know, the, bre the broad spectrum of people are here and the church is kind of right in the middle of it. And the church has, with the American culture, veered more and more and more to the right. Mm -hmm. And as the church has done that, like the general opinions and perspectives of people hasn't moved, but the church, at every level has become a more radical organization on the right side of it. And I don't mean right as correct, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they have been advocating more and more constrictive and restrictive belief practices. And then part of it's a feedback loop. You know, the church sees people leaving and they try to hold on super tight because they're panicking. Yeah. But the other part of it is that cultural move to a more and more constrictive ideology, a more and more conservative ideology. And the thing is, most of the Christian culture, the people who would nominally be Christian and believe in a liberative gospel, have stayed pretty much right where they are. So the church has veered off the road mm-hmm. and the people have stayed where they are. And the church is, you know, doing like the meme, you know, pow, 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 why would liberals do this? Yeah. You know, the you know the 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 nuns didn't do a damn thing yeah i think that that uh that can be a nice lead into another question i sent you and it was was kind of the last one i sent and it was more this is more of a being a scientist now or being being anything being a financier being a banker being a a person who works outdoors construction you name it um yeah that's a, the whole concept in the verses of uh, faith without works is dead mm-hmm. and how you live the gospel when you're not in a vocation that like is one we think about as like doing god's work not just not just ministers but i'm talking about like teachers mm-hmm. even parents parenting their children nurses doctors um doing life-saving things be it uh physically spiritually etc there's a there by and large many of us don't have careers in that so it's hard it feels like it's hard to live the gospel yeah on the day-to-day and i feel like i'm almost disconnected from it especially with with covid and not having church in person and not being able to 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 participate in that manner yeah and that can be a that can be a hard place to be mentally and emotionally uh but one point i mentioned this when we were talking about it uh before the recording is we have this mental idea that you know some vocations or ways of living life are shall we say more noble than others uh and you know we we feel bad if we have wound up in a vocation which by the way the sheer capitalist hubris uh, of assigning it strictly to your vocation right there is an issue uh, mm-hmm. because it's you know the christian mentality is about how you live your life not about how you uh, participate in the capitalist economy so we'll put that piece aside for a minute mm-hmm. but historically you know we've always viewed certain professions as noble and others as either neutral or outright ignoble but it's always been cultural the reasons we've done that um so like for example in America, what is what is considered in the American culture to be the most noble of professions? And some of the like cynical cultural America or not. I mean, in, in my communities that I identify with, mm-hmm. the more noble professions are those of like the doctors and the nurses. Mm-hmm. If you go into like deep rural America, they venerate soldiers, which yeah. I think is and that's, that's I, I think I think I think the sacrifice in a way is honorable, but I mm-hmm. think the veneration at this point, with, given what America has done in the world, is not. And that right there is, you know, I don't want to speak ill of of military men and women, um, not because I'm culturally terrified of it, but because I understand a lot of them, and, and I know and am friends with several of them. Uh, mm-hmm. I know they went into it for the best and most self-sacrificial reasons. 
But, you know, we can't deny that the administration of violence is at odds with the Christian faith. And we can't deny that the administration of violence on behalf of empire is definitely at odds with the Christian faith. Uh, so to venerate it socially to the degree that which we do is another one of those points of tension, a contrast between the faith and the culture. But these venerated occupations have changed historically. We haven't always venerated the same things, you know. Some days we say that a garbage man is the most terrible thing you could possibly be, and that's why you want to go to college. And other generations were like, hey, that's a good paying union job. Uh, and all of these things vary back and forth. And in looking at that, we can realize that the Christian mindset of how to be appropriately pious and humble and in good service to the, to the Christian community and God's work at large in the world has less to do with your chosen vocation than anything. Uh, there's a line out of a um, semi-unrelated passage in Luke that I keep coming back to, which is about, you know, if you're faithful to the little things then bigger things will be given. Uh, and that is, you know, kind of the thing is if you don't feel your occupation is culturally noble, that's okay. What's important is how you are going about are you being faithful in the administration of the gifts to which God has given? So like, we'll take you for example, Steve, you are, you're a damn good chemist. Um, you're, you're also a damn good Mahjong player, which is a totally different discussion. Uh, <laughs> but the the thing is, is in those- well, The only thing I can do, I, I, thought, I thought you might bring this back around just the preface of it. I thought you might bring this back around to the musical gifts that I've been given, but I don't play many a string instrument. I mm -hmm. play wind and mainly I am out of my current community working as a consultant mm -hmm. which is its own weird experience um, and I, I feel like I mean right now is a special circumstance but I feel I always felt like when I wasn't using the musical gifts for a church community in yeah. some way I uh, was not living as I should and if that's and that's where I that's where I, that's where I feel like I, I feel like I have a need to make up the difference yeah. in the vocation. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I feel like I'm contributing, but I don't know if it comes from the right place. I enjoy it, so I don't really care. Yeah. But and you're a lot like you're a lot like me in that respect. Is that you don't feel suitably engaged with your faith unless you're acting participatorily. There are a lot of people out there that are very receptive in their faith practices, and that's I guess good enough for them. Um, but mm -hmm. People like us, if we're not doing a thing, we have trouble understanding ourselves as sufficiently active in our faith. And so that one- I, I think that's what caught me, that's what caught me so much with the Episcopal Church mm -hmm. because it's like Catholic light at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's the joke, the Rob Williams joke, half Catholic light, all the faith, half the guilt. Yeah. Um, I think really none of the guilt there, but mm -hmm. the, the uh, like pseudo mass like um, service is very participatory. Yeah, it does give you a lot of options. You lose that the farther you get afield from the skid rate schism, basically. Yeah. And this so is a lot of that Lutheranism. Yeah. Well, this is also one of the challenges that a lot of us Protestant and Reformed groups have to face is, is keeping our ourselves and our communities engaged participatorily. Um, mm -hmm. Particularly, and I don't mean to, well, I do mean to honestly start ragging on uh, evangelical megachurches because I, I think they're terrible. But... Um, you know, evangelical megachurches are about the worst of this because what are they but giant rock concerts where all you do is 
sit there and passively receive a service that is given to you. There's no participatory element to it. There's no I figured element. you were going to rag on praise bands before megachurch. Well, you know, a praise like the, the musical, oh, the right. musical element find only a few people and there's not a lot of um, singing, the books are gone, there's not the creativity, etc. Let me put a caveat on that though and to say that, and this may surprise you to hear from me, the praise band actually isn't the problem by itself. Um, mm -hmm. I've actually had very good worship experiences that have included praise bands, uh, but it's how they're utilized. Uh, I once, someone once asked me to justify my position, I said that you can tell uh, if a church is using their praise band correctly, if they're center stage or left or right of center uh, when, they, when they go up to perform. And that, honestly, I think holds up. You, you can tell a lot by where, where the focus is. is. Is your praise band or your organist or your whoever, are they leading worship or are they participating and helping others to participate in worship? Now, the problem with praise music in particular, and this is where we stumbled with the megachurches, is it lends itself very, very easily towards receptive worship and becoming rock stars of the worship experience. And it becomes about the musicians and the music and the leaders. Uh, everybody's got to have their name in the credits. we got to make sure that you know this and that are all there all the time uh, so that everybody gets their propers. And that is not what worship is about. Yeah. And that is... You know, as you, you're, you're right in identifying that as we get away from uh, what we call high church, you know, the Catholic and the Catholic light, and we get into this more community-driven worship, it's much easier to become less participatory. And that is... Yeah, you know, I've always identified that as a problem with the music, just because of the uh, a robust, like, high church music program will have a choir that has way more people participating in it of different skill levels than any praise band will. And is, that is, you know, less people think that we're simply talking about the nuance of music and worship. This is actually a big issue with faith practice in general, which is which tool set you choose to use to connect yourself with God. Each have their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so we're talking about it in a worship setting. High church like Catholics and Episcopalians have a very detailed worship tool set that makes participation almost happen naturally. Uh, the, the upside to that is that you have to do very little to get people involved because it all happens naturally. It's built into the structure. The downside to it is it's all rote and uh, liturgical. So you have to be making extra effort to keep it interesting and engaging. Otherwise it'll get boring quick. The flip side is you go down the, the Lutheran and then to the Reformed and then all the way towards the evangelicals is we have very destructured worship experiences, you know, farther and farther away you go, which means that it can be varied and interesting and engaging for a receptive audience. But we have to now make the effort to make it participatory all the time. And that is how it works for worship. But every one of our faith practices, whether it's prayer or meditation or doing our work in the world or, you know, figuring out how we're gonna do our jobs and how we're gonna be faithful in that, it's all about knowing what we're doing and choosing how to counterbalance it. So to bring it back to your original question about, you know, the, the nobility of being a chemist in a religious environment, um, mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've got the gifts and the calling to a profession that lacks that cultural nobility. But that means you have to compensate harder by trying to find ways to connect your faith to the work that you're doing. 
um, I got it easy. Like I, I, I got called to a job that is intimately connected with faith practice. So I, I have to do yeah. very, very little work to find my own faith satisfaction in the work that I'm doing because it's kind of built in. But that means that I have to compensate by doing a lot more for other people. And honestly, it means I got to compensate by doing a lot more to find money to feed my family because, hey, us pastors, we don't make a whole hell of a lot. Uh, so, you know, you've got the flip side over there. You've got, it's easier for you to, to survive, to make money. It's easier for you to have more free time and to connect with the world in ways that I can't because I'm, as a pastor, you're kind of church community isolated in ways. So we each have to compensate in different ways. And it doesn't necessarily mean that my way and your way are right or wrong respectively. It just means that, you know, we're playing with different hands and we got to compensate in different ways. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. I agree. It's, it's, it's been, it's been harder with COVID. You don't have to uh, <coughs> compensate as much, I would say. I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to feed your family and everything, but the faith practice is all still there, but it's definitely mm -hmm. almost departed now that like I'm in a new city and I'm, and we're not, I'm not seeing any new people. That's for sure. Oh, so it's been a little, little bit of unnecessarily, uh, at the risk of sounding unnecessarily self-promotional, that's the whole reason we have this online church community. Ding. That's why I'm here <laughs> <laughs> to support it and get a couple questions answered, have a discussion. So, no, that's the, the whole point of this is to you know interact with our faith practice. You know, even though like what you're in Boston and I'm in Kobe, Japan, and we're still mm -hmm. able to connect like this. Which, in the end, I I've always felt has been the end goal of what this whole Christian community of fellowship is about: to be able to connect with anybody anywhere by simply saying, hey, we, we, are, we are fellows in Christ and we care for each other. And that's literally the only thing we need. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, so I don't know where we want to go further. Um, I, I, think we, I think we've pretty much gotten a good, a good amount here. So I think this is probably a good place to, to stop for today. Um, so for those who are, are still watching and have made it all to the way in, congratulations, you've done good. Um, Thanks if, for hanging in my weird wandering questions. <laughs> hey, that's, that's what real conversation is. And honestly, you know, I, I throw this up on the YouTube, I throw it up on the podcast channel and on Facebook. Sometimes this sort of stuff's good to have in the background just so you can kind of work through it while you're doing other stuff. So I, I hope people get a kick out of it. But for those of you who are still following along, um, this is kind of like, these videos are meant to be a little bit of a sampling of what life is like in this kind of online digital community we have. Uh, we do a lot more of this through text on the Discord server, and I want to encourage any of you who are following, uh, go on over to the website. I've got links in the description. Join up with us, you know, so, come, come on in, have, be a part of the conversation. You know, it's, it's fun to talk about this stuff, and we are a very unreserved sort of group. Uh, there, there are you know, there's language thrown around. So if you're uncomfortable with that, you might want to steal yourself before you dive in. But, you know, we do try to be honest about this stuff and do keep exploring this. We're going to be starting, I think uh, we're still solidifying the date, but we're going to be starting a, an online Bible study, uh, uh, starting through the book of Mark, uh, the oldest of the gospels, which I kind of you know, alluded to earlier. We'll be starting that next week. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, we've got this that comes out on Fridays, we've got our Psalms from the Trail ser uh, series that comes out on Thursdays. We've got scriptures and sermons that come out on Sunday with our, our prayer uh, requests and suggestions. 
we got a lot going on. So, you know, feel free to. to and, and I say, as we, as we've alluded to earlier, there's, we, Don and I have discussed, I discussed with them, like, where is this going to go? Should I be around for another episode? I have, I have questions. I certainly will, will levy them at you, but this may turn into a larger recorded thing with more than just me, more than just Courtney, more than one. Yeah. one for some of those heavier questions where we might want to share multiple perspectives that are outside of being a clergy person. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a couple people in on this. I'm already talking to some folk. Uh, Courtney's our regular contributor, but Steve, you're gonna I'm sure pop in from time to time as well. Uh, yep. I will of course always be here because I live here now. This is I just I I am become internet. Um, <laughs> I have evolved into my final pastoral form. I, I am the geek pastor of the internet. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way either, would you? <laughs> We're literally doing this broadcast from two different angles within the same Final Fantasy XIV in-room. Of course, I wouldn't have it any other different way. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it's, that, that, that's the in-joke for anybody who didn't know. Well, uh, the in-joke. I see what you did there. The in-joke, yeah. <laughs> well, in absence of any pluggables, I will tell... Um, our, our dear listeners here that they can keep an eye on our Sunday services and with any luck we'll be able to get some of your music back out in there. Uh, yeah, yeah that it's, it's been yeah I can speak to the music thing it's definitely been harder being here where I'm at. Right. Um, I, I need to get a I need to get a MIDI keyboard or something some sort of tool to help me record because all my instruments I can't play them in an apartment and they stayed in Michigan. Uh, the piano, which of course you are intimately familiar with, because I bought it from you. Yeah, <laughs> my 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 beloved Clavinova that I sold to you. Yeah, is sitting in the living room being unused, sadly, and I miss it. But it um, hurts to hear. I, I recorded a few different things already from earlier. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll be dropping quite a bit earlier services, um, but I, I hope I can I can work something in. I mean, I can probably I I would I. Thinking about buying an Irish tin whistle or something. I got me one of those. Those are fun. And uh, and then there's a there's a a, a world renowned recorder workshop in Boston that I have not yet not yet visited that I may buy an instrument from when I yeah, go there. Um, what? And I'm a little jealous of that. So I mean, those are the instruments I play. My clarinet's back in Michigan. Your oboe is back in Michigan, I think. Yeah, we've. We, we've been friends for so long that our instruments are all kind of with each other at this point. Yes. It's, it's, it's bizarre, but yeah, you know, like I alluded to before about vocation versus filling the gospel, I've always connected with the Holy Spirit and connected with God most through music. Same here. Yeah, honestly. It, it, it's great to be able to contribute and feel that, but it's, it's really hard times right now in general to be able to just experience music in person. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard with my work situation to make music even alone just because of the noise and everything else and the current living situation so that's tough so we'll go ahead and leave it there and uh for those of you who have made it all the way to the end good job and we will see you on the next episode of <laughs> Care. uh bye everybody take care <laughs>